On Christmas Eve 1945, nine out of ten of the Sodder children were home celebrating the holiday with their parents, George and Jenny, when tragedy struck. Five of the children were lost in a house fire. However, in the weeks and months following the fire, the surviving family members began to suspect that the children were in fact not dead, but missing. I'm your host, Michael, and this is Strange and Unexplained. George Sauter arrived in America as a teenager in 1908. He never told anyone why he left his home country of Italy, and the fact that he would never talk about why he left seems to have some people speculating the worst. Perhaps he was part of the mob, or perhaps he was running from someone. Maybe he had issues with the government, or, or into some kind of sketchy business and had to flee the country. But when I looked into life in Italy in the late 1800s and early 1900s, it was clear that Italy had a heavy migration of people to America, as the country was a mess, specifically southern Italy. The country was in massive debt at the time, following unrest between them and many bordering territories and countries. The south, being more rural farm area, was left behind while the north seemed to be following the path of industrialism. This led to even more civil unrest. So although George wouldn't talk about his departing of Italy, I think speculating he was some kind of fleeing criminal is a bit of a stretch. Especially considering George's life following his immigration. George worked hard for years and was able to save up money to start his own business and become a very successful entrepreneur. Shortly after he started his dirt hauling business, he met a young woman named Jenny, who had also immigrated to America as a teenager, and the two were soon married. They lived in a small town with a thriving Italian-American community in Fayetteville, West Virginia. Here the pair had ten children together, not only surviving but thriving through some tough times in American history, including the Great Depression. The now well-off upper-middle-class family seemed to not even notice much turmoil going on around them as their empire grew. By the night of the fire, December 24, 1945, the Sodder children ranged in age from John at 23 all the way down to little Sylvia, who was just two at the time, and is now the last remaining of the Sodder siblings. The siblings were as follows. John, 23, Joe, 21, Marion, 17, George Jr., 16, Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louise, 9, uh, Jenny, 8, Betty, 5, and then the baby Sylvia at 2. John, the oldest, had just returned home after serving in the war as World War II had just ended in April of 1945, along with Mussolini's life, as he was executed by Italian forces. The former Italian prime minister was known for leading a fascist regime and aligning himself with Adolf Hitler during the war. Joe Sauter, who had also joined the military, was unable to make it back home for the holidays at this time. But their father George was known to be very vocal about his dislike for Mussolini, and this created many enemies within the small Italian West Virginia community, as many still praised or agreed with Mussolini at the time. So maybe this gave a little insight as to why George left Italy in the first place. As it was Christmas Eve, the family had opened some gifts together that night before heading to bed. And as a result, some of the children pleaded with Jenny to stay up a little while longer, as I'm sure they were too excited to go to sleep. 
You know, I never understood this ritual of opening a few gifts the night before on Christmas Eve. All that does is just ramp up the excitement for Christmas, and now they just can't sleep even more. It doesn't, like, relieve some anxiety. You know what I mean? I think it just ramps kids up even more, and then they're just like, ah. Or they open a cool toy, a cool gift, or whatever, and then they can't play with it because it's, it's nighttime, right? They got to go to bed. Now they're just sitting there in the room with the new toy or a new video game console or whatever. But anyways, that's, that's neither here nor there. Uh, so some of the children, the younger ones mostly, stayed up while George and Jenny, so they got their way, while George and Jenny and their two eldest sons and little Sylvia retired to bed. Jenny woke up around 11 a.m. when the phone rang. 11 p.m., rather, sorry, when the phone rang. And this was odd, as they didn't typically receive calls that late at night. I mean, I don't know really who, who did. Um, but Jenny got up and answered the phone anyway. The lady on the other end of the line asked to speak to someone that Jenny didn't know, and so she informed the caller that she had called the wrong number. The woman laughed, quote, weirdly, and hung up the phone. Jenny would describe the call later and add that she heard the sound of glass clanging in the background and people talking and laughing. This by itself seems harmless and sounds like someone possibly at a bar, maybe was drunk and called the wrong number but it just added to the list of odd coincidences that surrounded the family's most devastating night of their lives. And in that sense, it seems a bit more ominous. So after Jenny hung up the phone, she looked out her bedroom door and saw that the lights downstairs had been left on. She had specifically told the children to cut them off before going to bed and was understandably frustrated, but slipped downstairs quietly and shut them all off. Her daughter, Marion, 17, had fallen asleep on the couch and was the only one still left in the living room. Jenny assumed the other children had gone up to the attic to sleep, as there were only two bedrooms on the second floor and they were pretty packed by now. So after the drawing the curtains, shutting off the lights, and locking the doors, she returned to bed. But as she was drifting off, she heard something. She described it like a rock or a ball that had been thrown onto the roof and then rolled down off possibly into the yard. She wrote the sound off as squirrels or some other kind of critter and started to fade again into sleep. When this time she was awoken by the smell of smoke, she quickly woke George and they both went to wake the children as the house was already on fire. They yelled at the children to get up and run, and only two boys, John and George Jr., had appeared in the doorway. The attic had already started to fill with flames and the parents were unable to get up there to their younger children. Exiting the house was George, Jenny, Marion, who had been asleep on the couch, baby Lydia, carried by Jenny, followed by the two boys. When George Sauter saw that many of his kids were still inside, he attempted to go back in after them, but was unable to make it past the staircase as the pine frame house had become engulfed quickly. He runs back outside and tries to reach the children through a window with a ladder that sat against the house normally. He always left it there for things like cleaning out the gutters and whatnot, but it was not in the spot he usually kept it. And when the family looked, they couldn't find it anywhere. So George runs over to two flatbed hauling trucks and attempts to crank them, his thinking being that if he can back the truck up against the house, he can use it to climb into the window. However, both trucks mysteriously would not crank. By this time, Marion has run to a neighbor's house after realizing the phone in their house wasn't working. And she attempts to call the fire department, but for some reason can't get through to them. 
A witness who was driving by the home stopped by at a nearby tavern also calls the fire department, but is unable to reach them. It's unclear who, either a neighbor or a bystander, had to actually go into town to find the fire marshal to report the fire in person. And they had only been about two and a half miles away from town. By this time, the house had been burning for a good 45 minutes and had already collapsed in on itself. All that was left to do was watch it burn. The family was left helpless. Everything they tried to get the children out had failed. They even attempted to throw water on the fire, but all the buckets had been frozen. This was December, after all. The fire truck finally arrived around 9 a.m. 9 a.m. Yes, almost seven hours later. The house was ashes by this time. The department blamed their tardiness on a lack of employees due to the war. Oh, and the fact that the overnight fire chief, for whatever reason, couldn't drive the fire truck. So why did no one working that night know how to drive the fire truck? This seems highly suspect. We do know that Christmas is a busy time for fires, right? I mean, surely they knew that. Due to the brilliant mix of Christmas lights and severely dried out Christmas trees, what the hell? You have to be prepared for fires during this time. So the Sauter family was forced to just stand there and watch as the flames engulfed their home and possibly five of their young children. Left inside would have been Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louise, 9, Jenny, 8, and Betty, only 5. By mid-morning Christmas Day, the embers are reduced enough to search through the remaining rubble in an attempt to find the evidence of the children lost in the fire. But to everyone's surprise, they find none. Okay, let me break right here to say I trust very little of what this fire department has to say from here on out. You showed up seven hours late to a blazing fire. You left a man in charge who can't even drive a truck during one of your busiest seasons. And these are the men we are entrusting with investigating this? But to be fair, they had no idea what kind of shit show this was about to be. So the fire department finds no evidence of the children in what remains of the house, but they consider them dead anyways, saying the fire burned all their bodies to ash. <laughs> Which, according to most of my research, is nearly impossible, as bones don't exactly burn easy. They have to be burned at super high temperatures for hours. And even then, most crematoriums are set up with machines that grind the remaining pieces down to what resembles ashes. Their investigation also concluded that the fire was a result of faulty wiring. And that a fuse box had started it all. Which was odd, considering the solders saying the lights were still working when they had woken to the smell of smoke. Even a passing witness mentioned the Christmas lights in the window still burning as the flames were pouring out of other windows. This was even more odd considering just earlier that year, the power company had come out to the Sauter residence and rewired the entire house, certifying it was up to code and safe. Another weird happening was just, do you need more? Because I got more. Another weird happening was just weeks before the fire, a man had come out to the Sauter house asking if they needed any work done. He had pointed out the fuse box and told George it needed to be redone as it could start a fire. George explained to the man that the house had just been checked out by the power company, and then he turned the man away. However, the encounter had made George uneasy, so again, someone from the power company come out and again reassured George that the wiring was safe. 
George wrote the whole thing off, figuring the stranger was just trying to make money and had hoped George wouldn't know anything about his own wiring. But unfortunately for that guy, it didn't work out that way. I don't know why none of this was considered in the fire department's investigation, though. Maybe they were just that short-handed and didn't know what to do and just didn't want to get involved in an investigation of this size, and so they just kept dismissing it as faulty wiring. And it ended up finally in the coroner's office, using a chosen jury who made the final conclusion on the cause of the fire, and they determined the fire was an accident and a result of faulty wiring. Now let's back up and talk about this jury that was selected. This is another one of those things that's odd on its own, but downright ominous when put with all the other clues. One of the men selected for the uh, determining jury also happened to be an insurance salesman. An insurance salesman who had visited the Sauter house back in October. And when George turned down his offer, the man got very angry and started yelling at George. Something along the lines of, Your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. End quote. That's goddamn that specific. And the fact that after all this came to light and the police still did not question the man, even though he had basically told George his house was going to burn down, makes all this the more suspicious. Were Mussolini sympathizers responsible for the Sauter house fire? Was this all an elaborate revenge plot set against George for his hate of the fascist dictator? Thanks to Fayetteville authorities, I guess we will never know. They seemed determined it was an accident, even after the Sauter family found evidence to back their suspicions. For example, three months after the fire, the Sauters visited the rubble with baby Sylvia. While she was playing, she picked up a small, green, hollow object that was made of hard rubber. The Sauters were baffled by the object. According to sources, George and Jenny had the object tested by military officials, and they identified it as part of an incendiary pineapple, or more commonly known as a napalm bomb. Napalm bombs were a fairly new tactic at the end of World War II, but were responsible for the deaths of more Japanese citizens than both atomic bombs Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The sticky gasoline was stable and cheap to manufacture, but its biggest draw was that the gel stuck to nearly anything, including skin, making it nearly impossible to put out. They said it could explain why the fire happened and then spread so quickly, and explain the noise Jenny Sauter had heard that night. The bomb hitting the roof and rolling down to the ground, or possibly in a gutter. But who threw the bomb? The lack of suspects and leads in this case is downright depressing. But one bystander was arrested later for stealing a big hook out of George's shed during the fire, but was later released after he admitted cutting the phone line, which he had mistaken for the power line, of course. Right? Ugh, honest mistake. Oh yeah, and there was no record kept of this man's identity, so any attempt to follow up with him failed. So, there's that as well. Many thought perhaps the thief also stole the ladder that George had attempted to use that night, but couldn't find. But it was later located over an embankment in a ditch on the side of the road, not far from the house, but near impossible to find in the night. It was as if someone had thrown it over there, hoping no one will find it. All this put together... And the fire department's still like, nah, looks like a classic faulty wiring to me. <laughs> or 
Well, eventually the Sodders were fed up with the incompetence of the town's fire department, coroner's office, and police department, and their lack of interest in the case, so the Sodders hired their own investigators. Jenny had been doing a lot of her own research, including visiting the local crematorium to learn about the process, and was convinced if her children had died in the fire, there would have been evidence of it. There had also recently been a fire that confirmed her theory, in which a three-story home burned down and killed all seven of the family members inside, and all seven skeletal remains were found and accounted for, including that of a three-month-old baby girl. I attempted to find more info about this other fire, but I can't really seem to find any record. It seems fishy that two fires would happen so close to each other, kill 12 people, and the fire department still doesn't suspect arson. One private eye, a man by the name of C.C. Tinsley, started listening on the local gossip and interviewing anyone outside of local law enforcement. He learned through this that the fire chief had been telling people that he had actually found a heart in the ash that day. Tinsley confronted the fire chief about this and was able to get him to confess. The chief led the detective and George to a location where he had buried the organ in a metal box. But in the next few days, it was determined that the organ in question was not a heart, but a liver. It also had no burn damage. And even more confusing still, it was a liver from a cow. It was beef liver. He claimed he did this in an effort to give the family closure. Sure you did. I'm sure you weren't trying to fool anyone. <laughs> hey, uh, asshole, you want to give the family closure? How about actually investigating their children's deaths or disappearances? I don't know. Just a suggestion. Again, here we are questioning the competence of this fire department. They were willing to fake evidence. What else were they willing to do? You know what it just occurred to me? I have never been this hard on a fire department before. Has anyone ever? I mean, everyone's always like, oh, nobody hates the fire department. Everyone hates the police. It's like, well, in this, in this case, there's a reason to hate the fire department, I guess. Of course, not all of them. This was, this, there's something more going on behind the scenes here, okay? I'll, I'll give my opinions later. So, anyways, in 1949, the Sodders hired a pathologist to test the soil at the site for evidence of the five missing children. And when the site was searched, it was basically a dirt mound at this point. As days after the fire, George covered the remains of the house with dirt with the intentions of building a monument to his children. Um, but this is funny. At the site, several human vertebrae were found during the excavation, and they were sent to the Smithsonian for examination, and it was determined that these bones were not from the Sodder children. Awkward. Experts pointed out that the age of the bones is inconsistent with that of the children, and also lack of charring on the bones. So it was suggested that the bones were actually in the dirt that George used to cover the site. The bones were sent back to the Sodders and have since disappeared. They're like, nope, these aren't your kids, but we don't know who they are. You can have them back. <laughs> so who was the dead person? Why are they not bothered by this? <laughs> but this also looks bad on George, though, right? As over the years, many began to suspect him. Although I think his actions following were pretty good proof of him having no involvement in this. Over the years, many other occurrences kept the Sodder family's hopes up that one day they will find their stolen children. The day after the fire, a waitress at a diner in the next town over said she had served the children breakfast, and when she attempted to speak to them, the men with them got angry, and they left shortly after. She said the children had been accompanied by two men and two women. Another witness claimed she was driving by the house as the fire was burning and saw the children being driven away in another car. 
one they didn't know. But when they asked this woman to testify, uh, she refused and recanted her testimony. On another occasion, the Sodders saw a picture in the paper with an advertisement for a school in New York. One of the girls in the photo they thought was definitely their little Betty. George immediately went to New York and started investigating. He was able to track down the girl's parents, but they refused to speak to George, and so did her school. After that, he went to St. Louis, where a woman believed that Martha was being held in a convent there. Then, people in Texas had boasted about being responsible for the fire. He's running all over the place. It didn't matter to George how small or slight these clues were. He followed every single one to the end, even when his own in-laws were involved. Members of Jenny Sodder's family living in Florida were said to have children that looked remarkably like the Sodders. And George went to Florida to make sure. Even his own family is under suspicion. It really seems like George did all he could to track his family down. But sadly, to no avail. The most heartbreaking story comes from a visit to Texas. He had been lured there on suspicion that Luis was living there with his brother Maurice. When he got there, he had police help in finding the two men. But when confronted... The men claimed that they were not his children and dismissed George. George's son-in-law, who had traveled with him on this trip, said that this incident had haunted George for the rest of his life, as he was never certain that those two men were not his children. The creepiest of sightings came to the Sodder's front door, though, right through their mailbox. When one day Jenny received a picture that was addressed to her, it was one of a young man smiling, and on the back it said, Louis Sodder. I love Brother Frankie, little boys. There was no return address, but the envelope had been postmarked in Kentucky. The man in the photo was about the age Louis should have been and looked remarkably like their son. It is here where the Sodders hired a second private investigator, and he traveled to Center City, Kentucky to follow up on his lead and was never heard from again. Now, whether this man was some kind of scam artist and ran off after taking advantage of a very vulnerable family or he was killed by the Italian mafia for getting too close to the truth. We will never know. But George died two years later in 1969, never believing that his children had died that night in the fire. And with his death came an end to most of the physical investigation as well, as George was the one doing most of the traveling around and following leads. Jenny still maintained a billboard with the children's pictures. Later, she even added the picture that they had received that they believed to be Louis. She would follow her late husband to the grave in 1989. Both George and Jenny continued to search for their missing children up until their deaths. They never gave up hope on finding them, and now their youngest daughter, Sylvia Sodder Praxton, the last remaining of the ten Sodder children, is helping to keep the siblings' memory alive. She holds a memorial meeting every year in Fayetteville, West Virginia, at the spot of the fire. Hopefully over the years, maybe with the new genealogy technology we have now, Perhaps descendants can be located, proving that George and Jenny were right all along. So what do you think, guys? What do you think happened to the Sodder kids? Obviously, they didn't burn up. One napalm bomb taking out that whole house, I just don't think, even with the, the stickiness, whatever, I just don't think the fire would consume all five children's bones. and at, just It's impossible, right? Somebody took those kids. Maybe somebody who wanted to convert those kids. You know, maybe they thought, we will, we will burn everything they have. We'll take the younger ones who are still, um, still able to be manipulated and raised somewhere else and controlled. 
and then uh, we'll burn everything they have and send a message to this uh, Mussolini hater. I don't know. Just the fact that the fire department couldn't be reached, all the different players in play, the, the lady that called, the guy that stole the hook and allegedly cut the phone line by mistake. Doesn't make any sense to me. Um, there's just so many things that added up. I mean, the the sound on the roof, the napalm bomb being found there. Somebody obviously, this was an attack. This was thrown, you know, something was literally thrown onto the roof. All this stuff was organized and constructed together. They knew exactly what was going on. Um, it's a terrifying story. It really is. I do believe, I do believe that those kids lived out life somewhere else. There's, I mean, there's still the two boys that George met in Texas. Why did they affect him that way? I feel like as a father, you would know. These boys were, you know, 11. I think the boys were between 11 and 14. So, yeah, that's plenty old enough. to. Re- I mean, people change, obviously, from 11 and 14 to adulthood. Um, but some of these leads were followed up just a few years later and whatnot. So I just, I don't think he would be that unsure. I really don't. But it just begs to question, you know, what were these boys told? How were they raised? Um, you know, did someone tell them, hey, maybe one day someone will come to you and say that they're your father. You need to stay away from this person. You need to leave. Who knows what kind of shit their heads were filled with, right? At such a young, um, manipulative age that they were definitely, they were taken. They were taken. I'm, I'm calling it. I'm saying they were taken. So let's uh, let's hear Lauren's side of the story here. Let's see what he thinks in this week's synopsis, and um, I'll meet up on the other side and see if anything else comes to mind. All right? All right, guys. See you on the other side. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren's synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren's synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren's synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. What's up, people? Lauren here. Here to get my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained. The over 75-year-old mystery of the Sauter family, whose home went up in flames on Christmas Eve 1945 in the middle of the night while they slept. Five of the nine children would never be seen again. The parents, George and Jenny, would escape the fire with four of their children, and as I mentioned, the other five never to be seen again. Their bones would not be found within the ashes, which should have been, according to forensic uh, scientists they say that you know the bones there was not the fire did not burn for long enough and hot enough for the bones to um, be turned into ash Um, so it is believed that they were abducted and taken away from the scene I know it was Christmas Eve it was was not an average night within the Sauter household Um, the mother Jenny had come home with presents for them and they wanted to stay up late and play with the presents she allowed them to um, some of the, uh, half the children, the ones that, that my theory is that they stayed downstairs and they stayed up late and they passed out in the living room and whoever started this fire, because it was, it was recorded as an electrical malfunction that started the fire, that it was no foul play. 
but we see very shoddy police work, potentially a cover-up, um, a very late response from the fire department as well, like un- unbelievably late response, like it took them hours to get there. By the time they got there, the house was already burnt to ashes, basically. Um, this was clearly a crime. This was arson. This was murder um, or attempted murder at the very least and an abduction of five children, in my opinion. George had a very checkered past. Um, he was very outspoken uh, about his homeland. He had been born in Italy in 1895 and had um, immigrated to America in 1908 when he was 13. And it's said that he came to America to escape something that had happened in Italy. He left on bad terms, uh, apparently. Um, and while in uh, Fayetteville, West Virginia, which had at the time a large Italian population, he was very outspoken uh, politically about uh, Mussolini. He was very opposed to Mussolini, the Italian dictator, and he was uh, not, uh, he was he was kind of alone in that. He didn't have many on his side. There was a lot of defenders of Mussolini, apparently, at the time. And so there was threats that had been made his way. There was an incident in October of 1945 where a life insurance salesman had made his way to the Sauter household and had given some unbelievable threats that seem like foreshadowing now. This life insurance salesman had said that uh, after George turned down his sales pitch for the life insurance, which is kind of weird that he was trying to sell life insurance when you think about what happens, um, when he denied the life insurance uh, offer, uh, this this salesman apparently said, quote, you would go up in smoke and your, your house would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. The dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini would be the reason. Absolute foreshadowing. Um, this salesman, quote unquote, is behind this uh, along with others, I believe. Was there a mafia connection? Um, I don't know. Was there a connection back to Italy? Um, I, I don't know. But I will say this is absolutely arson. This was attempted murder at the very least. And I believe that the, the children that were abducted, the five children were, because it was Christmas Eve, they were downstairs. They had passed out in the living room. These people showed up to burn the house down and weren't expecting to find the five children in the living room. They were expecting them to be upstairs. I think they came in, woke one of the kids and had to either kill them within the house before they burned it down or take them away where they later killed them. I don't think these kids survived. I think they were murdered. Um, I don't think the people who committed this this arson, which they intended to kill everyone in the home, in my opinion, I don't think they had any uh, motive to keep these kids alive. Um, it's possible, but I think you would have, you know, the, one of these kids would have been spotted or heard from again. I know there were sightings, but there's always sightings when you have something like this happen. Um, so yeah, that's my theory. I think, uh, I know the, the wife had heard a a thump. She had seen that the lights were on downstairs. She got a weird phone call prior to the fire starting. This rubber thing was found in the yard, which is believed to be a napalm pineapple bomb, which was, uh, commonly used in war at the time. Um, this is world war two time, 1945. So, uh, like I said, I think this was, George was targeted because he was outspoken and um, had gained a lot of enemies. And there was the warning from the uh, alleged, you know, insurance salesman, who I really think was just someone who was connected, um, some sort of a hitman. And had the, the, I think they intended to burn the house and kill everyone inside, the entire Sauter family. But 
they there was a monkey wrench because it was Christmas Eve. A lot of the kids were downstairs and caught them by surprise, and they improvised. Um, and I think there was a bit of a cover-up. I really think there was powerful people within this town at the time in Fayetteville, West Virginia, that were covering it up. Maybe the uh, organized criminal um, uh, element of this town at the time was more powerful than the local law enforcement. I'm not sure, but that's my thoughts. I don't think there's any other way to look at it. I think the the, the five children were taken away and later murdered. Um, and I think this was initially supposed to be arson that would kill the whole family, and it just didn't go as smoothly as these uh, perpetrators had hoped. Then maybe they shouldn't have picked Christmas Eve because people's... Uh, you know, people's routines are a little different on holidays like that. So that's my thoughts. Hope you guys enjoyed it. See you next week. All right. All right. Lauren, thank you for that excellent synopsis. Gave me something to think about, man, with the whole, they had to improvise on Christmas Eve, but to play Deadpool's advocate, maybe they picked Christmas Eve because they knew their whole family would be there. And they could off the whole family in one night. I mean, bar the one, um, the one son, Joe, who was still at war. Other than that, nine of the ten children were at home. You don't think that's the perfect time to strike? I think that is exactly what they planned for. They just did not plan um, for that many children to be downstairs. I think you're right. I think when somebody maybe broke in or when they smelt smoke or whatever and started to panic maybe they just like you said they killed the children then um or maybe kidnapped them took them other places killed them there um yeah there's definitely definitely some weird shit going on but i think with the whole insurance salesman the ladders missing the powers cut um all these things add up to this was heavily planned and i think it was absolutely planned on Christmas Eve on purpose. Now, whether that was a good decision or not, still, you know, uh, it's still up in the air because obviously George and Jenny lived, right, along with, um, what, five of their other children, even though one wasn't even there at all. So, um, either way, they definitely sent a message. They took five children from the Sodders that day, regardless of how they did it, and that is that is apparent. Whoever that is, it is apparent they definitely devastated that family. It's a shame that if uh, if this did happen because of some political views, uh, it's a real shame. But then again, there was like random bones in George's yard, so maybe he was killing people and it was revenge. Joking. Totally joking. Uh, I don't know what's up with those spines. But <laughs> but anyways, guys, um, I hope you enjoyed this the Sodder family case. It has been suggested multiple times. Um, one, one listener in particular comes to mind, Jeff, uh, who has requested it most recently and, uh, keeps hitting me up on Patreon. So there you go, Jeff. There's your solder children. Okay. Speaking of Jeff and Patreon, if you guys want to be like Jeff and get your suggestion heard at the loudest volume, check out patreon.com slash S and U podcast where those loyal listeners come first. Um, because, because they give me money, you know, yeah, you guys know how it is, but anyways, <laughs> you guys, patreon.com slash s and you podcast for just three bucks a month you guys get early access to uh this show it will be released on thursdays instead of mondays and then also on mondays you get access to strange shorts 
which is another uh, more lighthearted, off-the-cuff show that I do. Yeah, even more off-the-cuff than this. Yes, okay? I know that's what you're thinking. But, it, yeah, it's more off-the-cuff than this, okay? Damn. I know I'm unprofessional. That's that's the shtick, okay? That's the shtick. Everyone's pro- fucking professional. See how professional I am? Uh, <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> patreon.com slash SNU podcast. Guys, you can be part of the Sandu fam, like I said, for just three bucks a month. Five bucks a month gets you access to the Sandu stories. Next week will be a Sandu stories episode. It is a story that we do... Um, like an old-time radio show. There will be voice actors and sound effects and setting the scene and narration, and I try to not fumble over my words, believe it or not. Yeah, it takes a lot of cuts. It takes a lot of cuts. So a lot of work goes into that show. But that's Sandu Stories. You get a Sandu Stories every month, only on Patreon, the $5 tier and up. We have one more tier above the $5 tier, which is the $10 tier, and we get to be beast friends, okay? We get to be best friends. On Snapchat... Uh, you follow me on Snapchat, and then we will have Zoom call hangouts as well. Um, I'd say, like, let's say on like a bi-weekly basis. I think that sounds good. Okay? So all that is in the works, guys. So go check that out, patreon.com slash podcast. Another way to help the show is leave a review or tell a friend, right? Just, like, definitely not Chad did. Left a five-star review saying, a real hangout. I finally got around to SNU after I got up on all true crime guys or got all caught up, I'm sorry, on True Crime Guys, and love it just as much. The energy is so great and keeps it from getting too creepy, especially since I usually listen while I'm working overnight by myself. It feels like Michael is my friend who stopped by to keep me company for a while and has some cool stories to tell. That's all I could aspire to be, honestly. That's all I could aspire to be. I just want to be your friend and tell you about some cool shit, okay? And then you go on. Okay, this is not serial. This is not case file. I just want to be your friend. I just want to tell you about some cool shit. And you guys can go tell other people, okay? And hopefully it's easy to digest and somewhat entertaining along the way. All right. <laughs> all right, guys. Links to all my sources down below if you want to check out any of those things. Um, YouTube videos, articles, books, whatever the hell we use to study is down below. As well as links to True Crime Guys merch, uh, Strange and Unexplained merch, um, Patreon links, everything that I've plugged in this podcast down below right below the description okay thank you guys so much for listening and uh as always be strange just don't be strangers and i'll see you next week on patreon for sandu stories all right guys peace